0: I'm um, going to dedicate this shir to um, the father of a cousin of mine, who was Nifter a month ago, uh, he was in his 90s, a uh, very, very special human being. And there is a particular story about him which is amazing. I don't have his Hebrew name, tried to get it, didn't manage in time, that's on me. But this shir is going to be Lilun Nishmato, it should be an elevation for his soul. His name was Vern, Vernon Leopold. And I was Zohar to meet him many years ago when I was in Florida. I found these cousins quite by accident. That's a story in and of itself. Um, I want to tell you a story about a big pair of boots. Okay? Vern Leibold was born in Germany. He was a kid growing up in Germany. And uh, his parents realized that uh, it was time to get out. Oh, yes, it's over there. Right? His parents realized that it was time to get out. So he was sent... um, I don't remember the details, transport, whatever it was. And eventually they were able to get out and he made his way to America. And uh, he enrolled in, eventually, he enrolled in university. And he was in university. And he was, from what I could tell, both from meeting him a number of times, as well as from the way he told the story, he was basically in the geek squad. Okay? He wasn't heading off to war or anything, but you know, obviously with what was going on to the Jewish people at the time, he was one of the lucky ones who got out in time. And uh, he was in university, and if you were in university, you were putter, you were exempt from the draft, because you were in university. Um, But then came D-Day, and in D-Day, America took a lot of casualties, and it became clear this wasn't going to be a quick ending to the war, um, without going into all the strategic details. So they started desperately looking for more forces. It was going to be a long, drawn-out battle, you know, through Europe until they got to Germany. And uh, he, in order to be in the army and avoid the draft, he had been in ROTC. It was some sort of an army program in college where you kind of do basic training in the summer, whatever it might be. So they drafted them. And they sent them to camp, I think, uh, Juneau or Pendleton or whatever it was, and they did basic training. And the next thing they know, right, they're shipped off to Europe. Now this is the winter of 1944-45, okay? And the war is like, everybody knows the war is going to be over. They just don't know exactly when it's going to be over. And uh, his unit was sent to um, the Ardennes Forest in Belgium. Right? Now, when they get to Belgium, it's freezing. It's winter in Europe. Right? This is cold. And um, they were issued gear. And it happened to be that he had huge feet. He had size 13 feet. He's also a tall guy. Now if you have a size 9 or a size 10, you'll get a pair of boots because that's the average size. But if you have a size 13, they don't make a lot of size 13 boots. And this is the American army in 1944-45, not, you know, the online Amazon, we can get it any time of day or night army, right? There was only one pair of size 13 boots that was in the requisition. It happened to be that the battalion commander had very big feet, so he got the size 13 boots. So Verne Leopold ends up with boots that are too small. And he starts to get these terrible blisters on his feet. So he figures he'll be smart. What would you do if you are in a pair of boots and your feet are crunched up and you're in these terrible blisters? What would you do? You'd cut open the ends of the boots. And that's what he did. He cut open the end of his boots so that his feet could breathe. But he did this in Belgium in the winter. <laughs> Not a good move. So he starts to get frostbite. Now they're in this area where nothing's going on. It's completely quiet. Like, it sounds very brave. They're in Belgium. They're in World War II. And basically, you know, they had to dig a foxhole. And they sat in the foxhole. And, you know, it's the cold forest, uh, the winter snow. If you ever saw a band of brothers, you could see a scene and get it. But if you didn't, uh, you know, it's worth watching, whatever. Not during Seder time, but okay, right? And, and he's like, you know, that's where they are. They're in the ditch and, you know, in a foxhole and day in and day out and doing patrols and walking through the forest and whatever. And he gets frostbite in his feet. Now, the frostbite seems to be getting worse. So eventually, you know, he's complaining to the medic and the, you know... So finally the medic comes and takes a look at him. You know, it's not like today where you're in a base. They're they're scattered all along the line. It's a totally quiet area. There's nothing going on, right? And um, the medic comes to take a look at him. And he says, you got serious frostbite. You need to see the, you know, you need to see the company medic. You need to see, you know, you need to go to back to battalion where they have like a proper first aid station. Okay. So they put him in a jeep and they drive him off to battalion, you know, where he can get some first aid at the medical station. He gets to the medical station and there's a doctor and the doctor looks at his feet and the doctor says, oh no, this is, this is serious. You need to see a proper, you know, doctor who can diagnose this and you need salves and we don't have that here. We're a field, you know, we're just a field first aid station. So they send him back to brigade headquarters. Now, he doesn't want to go to brigade headquarters because he knows already how the American Army works. He's going to end up somewhere. They're going to keep him there. He's going to get separated from his unit. These are his guys. And he doesn't want to be with some guys he doesn't know, but this is an order. You're ordered to go back. So he gets to brigade headquarters. It's now, you know, sort of towards night, the end of December 1944. And uh, he's forced to stay there overnight. In the morning, a doctor comes to look at him, and the doctor says to him, oh, no, 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 this is really bad. You need to get this taken care of. We're sending you to the hospital in division headquarters, right, which is further back in London. he really doesn't want to go because he understands he's going to get stuck there, and then he's never going to find his unit. They're going to move them. You know, this is World War II. This is not, you know, sort of, you know, check on my phone where you are and send me your location. They didn't have that back then. Long story short, he gets to the division headquarters. division says he has to go to... He ends up on a train headed back to Paris to a proper hospital to get his feet taken care of. And he's really upset because he knows he's never going to get back to his unit again and he doesn't know anybody. And he's this Jewish kid. He's not really a serious soldier or whatever it is. He's just, you know, six weeks of basic training or whatever it was, and he's headed on a train to Paris. What he doesn't know is that the reason that that area of the line was so quiet was because it was part of a larger plan of the German army. The German army was planning a counter-offensive. And by the way, you can look this stuff up online, they almost changed the course of the war. Right? On December, I believe it was 25th, I think it was xmas Day, but at the end of December in 1944, right, um, a number of divisions of, of German panzers attacked this area of the line, which was sparsely manned. The units that were there were completely overrun as hundreds of thousands of German soldiers poured into the forest, and they were completely overwhelmed. And they broke through the lines, and they created a bulge in the line of the Allied sort of border defense against Germany, which is why it was called the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, his daughter... uh, my cousin's wife, basically Elise Moen, shared a book that told this story. It's an unbelievable book and it's called The Battle of the Bulge, right? And, um, and, and without going into all the details of this, of this part of the war, they almost turned the tide of the war. How G- General Patton saved the day and what a Baruch did is a topic for another time. Now, his entire unit, by the way, was either killed or taken captive, POWs. Right? And He didn't know this. He had no idea that this was going on. He was back in Paris, and they were taking care of his foot. Only uh, uh, much later did he discover what had happened and what had happened to his unit. And they were all killed. And if he would have had smaller feats, he would have been killed, too. Fast forward, just to finish the story, um, some 20, 30 years, it's the 1970s, and he's now living in Florida, which is where I met my cousin by accident and whatever. And uh, he sees an ad in the paper that there is a reunion of you know the thirty first of the eighty first or whatever his unit was to to celebrate you know sort of thirty years since the Battle of the Bulge, and he was like blown away because that was his unit number. He's like, who who is coming to this reunion? So he decides to go, and it's in Florida, and he goes to this reunion, and he discovers, and everybody looks at him. They feel like they saw a ghost. You see, nobody knew that he had been taken back from the line because the Battle of the Bulge broke out a few hours after they left. So they just assumed he was killed. In fact, there's a memorial to him somewhere because they assumed he was dead. He had no idea that they were alive because this was the Battle of the Bulge. Their whole unit was overrun, right? And the guys who were alive were alive because they'd been taken prisoner. They were PLWs. Now, if he would have survived that onslaught, one of two things would have happened. He would have been wandering in the forest trying to reconnect with the American lines. But he was basically a German kid who ended up in the army with a severe German accent. And he didn't know the answers to all the questions they would have asked. Now there were Nazis who disguised themselves as American troops during this period of time because that was a way that they tricked the Americans and the Americans knew this. So they had systems. You know, they would call out, okay, You know, um, who was the starting lineup? Who won the World Series in 1931? He didn't even know what the World Series was. So if that would have happened, they would have killed him. And there were many stories of soldiers in this exact situation were killed. If he would have been captured by the Nazis, they would have quickly discovered that he was Jewish. You know, his name was Leo, and he, I mean, you look at him, he's a Jewish guy. He just has that look, right? And they would have checked him. It's pretty easy to check. He would have survived. So he survived... Because he had big feet. He survived because there was only one pair of boots. He survived because he happened to be in a battalion, what are the odds, where the battalion commander had size 13 boots. And that's why he ended up in Florida, and he had children and grandchildren, who, by the way, live in Israel today. His grandkids have done the army and so on and so forth. What is the motto of this story? Shem runs the world. Now, why do I tell you this story? First of all, it should be, you know, that generation is little by little dying out. We're losing part of history. It's a mitzvah to tell these stories. It's a mitzvah to meet such people and and to connect with them when you have the chance. But on a deeper level, do we have a choice in life? (coughs) You know, we we, we feel like, uh, you remember that moment when you know, you weren't sure where you were going to go for the year, and you're debating, you know, do I go to a writer, or do I go to... right? <laughs> Whatever it is. And you feel like I made the right choice, but did you really make the right choice? Or did Hashem choose it for you? Was it because Rav Judah happened to show up that day, and he said the right thing? Was it because you happened to have a friend, who happened to know a guy? Was it because you happened to listen to a she'er? Like, what did you really know about this place? How could you possibly know whether this is a place for you? Or did we choose? Why are we here? You know? Some Arab on the side of a road in the middle of a takes a shot. Am I still here because I was driving a little faster? Because I leaned forward? Hashem has this all, but do we have any choice in life? Now why do I bring up this topic? Because this is one of the major questions of the entire story that we're in the midst of in Parashat Shemot right? va'era bo' b'shalach Really Shemot va'era bo' is the story of Egypt It's the enslavement It's the plagues It's the redemption And one of the fundamental questions is Hashem says, sends Moshe He says I want you to go talk to Paro What's he going to ask Paro? What's he going to say? Three words Shlachatami, let my people go What's Paro going to say? No Who tells Moshe that Paro is going to say no? So this is in, in, it's in, by the way, it's in Shemot, and in it's in Bo, but since we're in Va'ira, we'll choose this one. Atat edaber, at, this is in Parak Zayin, Bet. Atat edaber et at kol hasherat and you will speak to Paro, all that I command you. V'yaron hachichei daber al Paro, v'shilach et so that he should send the Jewish people from his land. V'ani akshet leif Paro, but I'm going to harden Paro's heart. V'yichbeti to totai v'tmoftai, v'lo yishmaa lechem Paro, he's not going to listen to you. Now this seems like a rather silly recipe. I want you to go talk to Baro, and I want you to ask him to let the people go. But he's not going to let them go because I've hardened his heart. Ask me the obvious question: There are two. Why bother? Why bother? Or why bother? Right? <laughs> why bother? He's he's not going to let you go. Why am I sending Moshe to talk to Paro to begin with? What's this whole game? Number one. Number two. So, Hashem says. And therefore Moshe says to Paro, let my people go. Paro says, no. He says, okay. Watch this. Right? And the Nile River turns to blood. And the Egyptians suffer. And Moshe goes back to him again and he says, let my people go. And Paro says, no. Because Hashem said he's going to say no. And once again, Moshe says, okay. Watch this. Now all the frogs come out. And this recipe continues. of Why is Paro responsible why is he paying the consequence for the fact that he didn't release the Jewish people when Hashem decided he's not going to release the Jewish people? How can you hold a person accountable when it's not your choice? On a deeper level, if we don't have choice, how are we accountable for anything that we do? Now that question is going to be part of our panel discussion on Sunday, but those are our two questions, right? So it's interesting. If you take a look in Parshat Bo, Right? you take a look in Parshat Bo, this is actually a theme that continues. Vayom Rachel Moshe Bo El Paro leave aside why you're coming to Paro or not going to Paro. We can talk about that next week. Ki Libovet Li right? God seems to be repeating himself, but okay. I have hardened his heart. Here, Hashem tells us why he's doing this. He says, I'm doing this for two reasons. In the order that I should, let's just say, ensconce or bring my plagues, my signs, into the midst of Mitzrayim. Right? That I could do all these miracles. And so that you can tell your children, and your children's children, that which I have hit alauti to the Egyptians. So there are two reasons here. The first reason to bring all these plagues and doing all this work is because I want them to experience these plagues. They've been evil. There needs to be a consequence. The world needs to see justice. There needs to be a consequence for the things we do in this world. Otherwise, it's, life is meaningless. And the second reason is so that you can tell your children what I did. Now, the first reason... We're going to put aside. That's an interesting discussion, and probably we'll get into that either over Shabbat or for sure on the panel on Sunday morning. But the second reason fascinates me, right? So that you can tell your children etasher hit alalti b'mitzrayim. Now, what does hit alalti mean, right? kapecha, okay? We're going to sing this tomorrow, right? So Uncle says, right? Hit lauti, okay the miracles that I did. Right? Avadit means I did. In other words, action. What your hands have done. Right? Um, uh, uh, Let the nations know the actions of Hashem. So on the one hand, is what I've done. Okay. There is, however, a second interpretation, which is Rashi. Rashi says, right? Sichakti. I have laughed, right? In other words, this is a form of laughter. Now, it's interesting that there are two types of laughter. There is a laughter of joy. It's hard to imagine that Hashem is, wants us to tell our children that he was joyous in destroying his creations. There are actually sources in the Talmud that suggest exactly the opposite. So you're left with the second possibility, which is that hitalalti is that I ridicule. There's a laughter of cynicism. Of ridicule, of scorn. In other words, I showed everybody what a ridiculousness I did or made of the Egyptians. Here is this empire; they're the greatest empire on the face of the earth. Watch me make mincemeat of them. Okay. And the quote that he brings is from Bilam. Bilam says, "Ala Sheri talalta bit his donkey. You scorn me; you are making me look ridiculous." Okay, fine, right? There is a problem with this, though. If the reason that Hashem brings the plagues is because He wants to show us, the world, what He has done, and how He has ridiculed the Egyptians, take a pause to think about this. The Egyptians believe that they can do... By the way, it's, it, it's very interesting. If you look carefully at the Pesukim, the Egyptians, it's not that they don't believe that God exists. Paro doesn't say, God doesn't exist. He says, Mi Hashem Asher who is this God that I should listen to? I believe that there's God. I just, I think we're better than him. And on an on a almost eschatological level, the Egyptians to some degree are doing battle with God. So God says, okay, watch this. I'm going to take you down. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, I Hashem created the Egyptians. It's, it's like me saying to you, listen, I've been working out for months. I'm going to show you how tough I am. Watch this. See this hand? This is a strong hand. I got this guy. Mm-hmm. so you look at me like okay we need some help here like there's <laughs> something like imagine you're doing an arm wrestle with your pinky like that's what they, like the Egyptians are created by Akash Baruch what do you mean there's no war here there's no battle here which I think is precisely the point Rav Nevinsel has a magnificent sicha on this that's actually exactly the point in fact the reflexive here hit alalti we, we spoke once about the concept of a reflexive um as something that I do to and for myself in the context of Tfilah. We don't say Palalti, we say Hitpalalti. But there is another aspect to the reflexive, and that is that when you see the Hitpal form, the reflexive, it means that there's a disguise. Like, for example, in Gilas Esther, if you look in Parag right, it says, Rabbi Mearetz mit Yahadim. Um, when the Jews are victorious against the forces of Haman, so there are many persons who started to pretend to be Jewish because they wanted to save themselves. Right? Um, There's a person who pretends to be rich and really he has nothing. That's a Pesach and Mishle. So hit alalti is that what I'm doing is really a disguise. What is the purpose of this whole game? this whole Egyptian journey. Now this is really something worth thinking about, okay? You know, us Mitzrayim, when you think about it, there's a mitzvah. In fact, uh, you can find this in the Rambam. The Rambam, um, you know, the mitzvah to say Kriyat Shema, right? That we accept Hashem and say the Shema every day, um, is actually not incumbent upon women, because it's a mitzvah man mangrama. It's something related to time, and for various reasons that are beyond the purview of this year, but happy to talk about that in the Q&A, or Friday night in the Tish. Um, women were not obligated in mitzvah man mangrama, right? You know, a woman can decide she wants to take upon herself to sit in a sukkah, but she's not obligated. And you can imagine there are all sorts of sociological reasons, for this or whatever. However, there is another mitzvah in Kriyashma, which is the mitzvah to tell over the story of Egypt. Right? The Rambam says this very clearly. He says, um, I think he says this. He says in Perak Oh, I'm in the wrong place here. He says in Perak Aleph, Allah Gimel, Um Same Where do I find that line? In order that you remember Egypt your whole life? remember the Nahagada? And in the Haggadah, that teaches me that I'm supposed to say it's says the day and in the night. And the Rambam Paskins, that that's actually an obligation. And this obligation, women are obligated to, which is fairly interesting because it's also an association among Women have an obligation and therefore there are many who say that a woman should say Krishna every day even if she doesn't do anything else because, because of the mitzvah to say over and remember the exodus from Egypt. Think about how often we're commanded to remember the exodus from Egypt. Tzitzis, are very much wrapped up in Laman, Tizkaru, Right, you're supposed to remember that you got out of Egypt in fact that's why we add the third chapter of Kriyashma and the Shulchan Aruch, the Magin ram by the way paskins, it rules in the Shulchan Aruch that if you said Kriyashma and you said the first, third section and you didn't have Kavanot, you weren't really thinking about tzrayim, that you should really say it again and Revenzel believes that even if you didn't say the Shema again you should take a moment to remember it' Tzir Mitzrayim because it's a mitzvah why is this such an important myth? Tefillin includes Yisrael. Kiddush on Shabbat we talk about Yisrael. Every yom tov we make kiddush. Remember, why are we always remembering Egypt? We got out of Egypt. Let it go. We're on to other and bigger, better things. We don't have a mitzvah to remember entering Eretz Israel every day. Why not? You know, Ben Gurion is famous for for many things, but um, one of his lines. Uh, I, I forget the context, which would be valuable, but not for now. Um, it, it, it was when he was meeting one of the presidents in America, I think possibly Truman. Um, if you ask the average American on what date the Mayflower landed on Plymouth Rock, which was the beginning of sort of America, really, they couldn't tell you. But if you ask a Jew, most any Jew, when the Jewish people got out of Egypt 3,200 years ago. They'll tell you the 15th day of Nisan, which is unbelievable. Why is this time so important? What is it about time? So the truth is that the Torah tells this to me. What does the Torah say? You explain this constantly, right? It says, why am I doing it? Why are we doing all this? This is in Paragzai Zion, Plus in Vayera. Ki The whole purpose of this is that the Egyptians should know that I'm God. They should relate to the concept of me as God. And if you look a little later, it says it again, right? In Perak Zayin, Pasuk Yud Zayin, again, Ko amar Hashem, Bezot teida ki In this plague, you will know that I am Hashem. And again, in Perek Chet, Te teida ki Hashem. Every plague, it's all about, in order that you should know, that I am Hashem. So I want to tell you two ideas. They're both valuable, and they're both worth thinking about. The first is the question of choice. We asked how it is that Paro is responsible for his decisions when, you think about it, he didn't really have the opportunity to choose otherwise. So Rashi and the Ramban note something fascinating. Says Rashi... um, Without going into sort of everything the Rashi says here, it's a Rashi worth seeing. It's on the Pasuk of Gimel, Aniak She'a, who hardened Paro's heart. Even though Hashem does this so that the Egyptians should be punished and so that we should know and everything else, And the Ramban echoes this. Even though Hashem says I'm going to harden his heart, when you look carefully... It doesn't actually say that Hashem hardened Power's heart in the first five plagues. It says that Power hardened his heart. Only in the sixth plague does it actually say, and Hashem hardened Power's heart. What's going on? You can make choices that remove your ability to choose. Think about this for a minute. God forbid a person tries drugs. I remember. Um, I think I was in high school, I don't remember. But there, I remember in, in New York, there was this big crack academic, epidemic. It was this new drug, and it was all over the newspapers. And the reason crack made such a big headline was because apparently, if you try, crack was so powerful, it was a combination of different uh, phenamines or whatever else it was, I don't know. It was so powerful that if you tried it once, you got addicted. But even crack, the first time you pick it up, you're making a choice. But if you choose to take drugs enough and you become addicted, you no longer have freedom of choice. In order for a heroin user to break his habit, he can't do it on his own. It's not possible for him to choose not to use the drug. That's how deep an addiction can go. So you can make choices that remove your ability to choose. 1944, Adolf Eichmann wants to negotiate a deal. And I believe the fellow's name was Joel Roth. who is a, who, who in, the, in the Jewish world, and actually meets with Eichmann. And he's trying to save... There were 550,000 Jews of Hungary, 150,000 of them survived, 400% of their deaths in Auschwitz. So he's trying to save the 400,000 Jews of Auschwitz. And Eichmann understands that the biggest challenge that the German military has is their supply lines. They don't have enough trucks to get the supplies to where they have to go right? So he says, if you will negotiate with the allies and get us 1,000 trucks, I'll give you the 400,000 Jews of Hungary. And to demonstrate that he can deliver, he stops the gas chambers at Auschwitz for two weeks in the summer of 1944. And if you look at the logs of Auschwitz, you will see that there was a backlog of trains because they stopped the killing for two weeks. Without telling you the whole story, it's actually a major section of a book while six million died. But bottom line is the Allies refuse. They actually arrest him, put him in a cell until the end of the war, and he dies a devastated man. But Doroth, if, if I'm getting his name right, but, but as an aside, just think about this. Like 400,000 Jews are not worth a thousand trucks. So 400 Jews are not worth a truck. What's a Jew not worth? A truck tire? a steering wheel. But there's a deeper question there. Why is Eichmann need to negotiate with the Allies? They have trains. They have railway lines, which would actually have been more efficient to supply their troops. What's the obvious answer? They're using all their trains to take the Jews to Auschwitz. That makes no sense. But they had committed themselves to evil, to such a degree, they were no longer able to do good. Yasser Arafat, by the way, makes the same mistake. Right? After the Oslo Accords, Ehud Barak was the Prime Minister of Israel in the summer of 2000, in a conference at Camp David, offers Yasser Arafat an unparalleled deal. 97% of all of die and Shamran, and an additional 3% equivalent from the Galil, from the Triangle of Mishulash, He's going to give them a state of their own. They're going to have a state. He's going to give them a symbolic right of return to refugees. They're going to arm them. They're going to give them an army. I mean, the list is endless. It's unbelievable. Even if Yasser Arafat wants to continue the war against the Jews, he should take the deal. Then they'll be sitting on the high ground. They'll, be able, they'll have a much better position. As a state, they'll eventually be able to arm themselves. He can't do it. He's made choices... <laughs> that are progressively so evil, he can't choose good. Now, the good news is, just like you can make choices that preclude your ability to do good, you can make good choices that preclude your ability to do bad. You can choose to be an ethical human being. You can get yourself to the point where it's no longer possible for you to be unethical. If the Vilna Gaon and the Chafetz Chaim are walking by which would be interesting because they lived 150 years apart but let's say they're walking down the street and they pass a mcdonald's and they're selling cheeseburgers and there's a sign that says buy one cheeseburger get another one free they're not getting schar for not buying a cheeseburger they're not going to get to canadian and, and a coach himself themselves good move on the cheeseburger by the way that's impressive Is the film the gun it's not possible for the gun to eat a cheeseburger can you make choices that make it impossible for you, right? You, you can decide to create a habit that you greet every person with a smile and you can get to the point where it's actually impossible for you to not smile when you say hello to a person. Which, by the way, can be challenging. You come to a shiva, you sit down, and somebody says, hey, how you doing? And you start smiling and you realize you're at a shiva. So that's an interesting question, but that should be your problem. You can make choices. You can decide that I'm gonna choose a path of life. I'm gonna learn Torah every day. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a better human being and preclude your ability to make bad choices. That's the first lesson from Paro. The second lesson from Paro is very simple. What was it about Yitzhak Mitzrayim? What did the Jewish people discover in the Exodus from Egypt that's so critical that we have to think about it all the time, that every day we're supposed to remember it, and by the way, that this idea, whatever this idea is, has to be inculcated in the Jewish people before we're ready to, to get out of Egypt and receive the Torah. What is that idea? Very simple. Right? And I'll give you an example. Which is similar to an example of Nevisal gives. So let's say, you know, Baruch Hashem, we have uh, four grandchildren. Fifth on the way. And uh, let's say, you know, um, our, our, our youngest, uh, or second to youngest granddaughter, she's three years old. Okay? And let's say that, um, that I buy her, uh, I don't know, uh, I buy her a toy truck. Okay, she's still young enough that she likes trucks. She'll grow out of it, right? And I buy her a toy truck. And she's so excited about this truck because you can sit on the truck and you can ride around the living room. And she goes to sleep and she has a dream that she rides the truck to Yerushalayim. Right? Amazing. Then she wakes up in the morning and the truck is sitting next to her bed and she realizes it was a dream she isn't in Yerushalayim. So she thinks to herself, okay, I'll have to later figure out how to take my truck and go to Yerushalayim because she thinks the truck is real. The only aspect of her dream she thinks is a dream is that she didn't get the usual yet. but she thinks the truck is real because she's three years old or two years old or whatever it is. Then her father kind of hears this or figures this out, gives her a kiss, right? And then he goes off to work in his truck. He says, I'm in a real truck. But the truth is, his truck is just as so much an illusion as hers is. Because we're living in a world where Hashem runs the world. The Jewish people are in Egypt and they think that might makes right. And they think that Egypt rules the world because they're the mightiest emperor in the world. Hashem comes along and says, I'm going to show you that Egypt is just a tool. They're my tool. All of this is an illusion. You want to see it's an illusion? Nature doesn't run the world. Might does not make right. I'm going to show you that we're living in a world of illusion. Reality is a completely different thing. In the world of Hashem, right, in the world of illusion, so you can't put water and fire in the same place. One will put the other out. But in the world of Hashem, what's the difference? So you have barad and water and fire together. In the world of illusion of Egypt, the Nile River is a god, right? It's called the Yeor. You know why it's called the Yeor? Because Hashem creates the world and says, the light of the world is from Hashem. The Egyptians come along and says, no, the light, of, the light of the world is from the Nile River. Nature controls the world. We're living in a world of nature. Natural processes are what matter. So Hashem says, I'm going to show you that the Nile River is not the source of life. I'm going to fill it up with blood, which represents death. I'm going to undo. You have undone creation. I'm going to undo your undoing of creation. Right? The Mishnah of Perkei says, The world is created in ten sayings. What's the tenth saying? The first one is, <laughs> The Egyptians say, No, 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 we don't agree with that. <laughs> 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 Hashem says, Okay, I'll show you the or is dead. Eventually, Hashem has to fix that again. So there are ten commandments. And in the Aseretat which are really ten sayings, ten things, whatever, Right? I am the source of reality the tenth ma'amarin breshit, right? Vayomer adam let us make man. I am the source of human beings. Paro says, no, I'm a god, I'm the source of human beings. So the tenth plague, the firstborn, I'm going to show you, I get to decide who's, who lives and who dies. I'm going to create a plague which is impossible. It will never be again and it has never been since. Right? Which is the same thing. But okay, right? We, we don't know of any disease that affects people based on order of birth and that's what happens because Hashem is the source of life now by the way I'll give you a little homework if you take the Aserah Ma'amarot and the Aseret Dibrot and the Aseret Makot, and you put them all in a row ask yourself so why is Lo-Tachmod the parallel to Makat Precharot like that's an interesting project to do but basically, we live in a world of illusion, right? Rabbi Chanina comes home in the Gemara and he finds the whole house in a tizzy. And his daughter says, there's no more oil to light the licht and it's Shabbos, so how are we going to light the licht? So Rabbi Chanina says, what's the problem? Let he who said oil should burn, make vinegar burn. Now, you and I know that vinegar is not combustible, so that's ridiculous, Somebody forgot to take, tell Rabbi Khanina. If you're Rabbi Chanina's daughter, again, whether this is literal or allegorical, if you're Rabbi Chanina's daughter and Rabbi Khanina says light vinegar, you light vinegar. So she lights vinegar and lo and behold, it's a miracle The vinegar burns. What's really going on in the Gemara? Rabbi Chanina says, no, 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 you don't understand. You think it's a miracle that vinegar burns. It's a miracle that oil burns. It's all a miracle. If Hashem runs the world, then it's all a miracle. And miracles are only natural. So what's the difference if the miracle is that oil burns or vinegar burns? And if you're on that level, ben met. It's all the same. So the miracles can happen. We're not on that level. I'm not sure we can get to that level. Or if Desla says, we're not capable of reaching that level. But that's the idea. Now I get why it's Yitzit Mitzrayim is so important. Well, this will end. That's why we say this every day. That's why we think about it all the time. To remember that there was a moment where we discovered that we're living in a world of illusion and there is only one reality. And that reality is that Hashem runs the world. What would life be like if you made this a part of your life? If you knew that Hashem runs the world. You know, you invest in a business and it doesn't work. And so you lose your money and you're devastated. And people do terrible things because of this. But if you really understood the decision okay, so Hashem decide, today the vinegar is gonna burn, this business is not gonna be, let's find out what Hashem wants. You know, there's a boy who, who you know, will, will give a shout out to Daniel Berger, who's on his way back to the States for a couple of weeks, and he had some mess up, I don't know, his passport, it was here, it was there, stressed, is he going to make the flight? So the boys were saying, give, me, give him some chizik. I said, I'll give him some simple chizik. He's going to find out whether Hashem wants him to fly tonight or wants to be with us for Shabbos. He said, if I see him at Mincha tomorrow, I'll know he didn't make his flight. But why would you get stressed about that? Let's find out what Hashem wants. Now, I grant you, it's easy for me to say, hey, I'm sitting here. You know, I know I'm going to be for Shabbos, for Hashem. Right? You would live a different life. You know, I'm going to drive in tomorrow. I'm going to come for Shabbos. I think Hashem wants me for Shabbos. Maybe I'll find out now. Maybe Hashem will say, mm, I think you need to be in like, Nevei Daniel for Shabbat. So we'll send your car this way. We'll make this happen. We'll Koshbacher runs the world. That doesn't mean you don't have to do your bit. You don't sit at home and say, let's find out if Hashem wants me to get to Yushalayim. Because you have to do your bit. And that's a different discussion. We'll talk about that on Sunday in the panel. But once you've done what you can do, well, then you could say, now it's Bidei Shammai. That idea is such a critical idea. Before I'm ready to receive Torah, it's only when I really understand that Hashem runs the world that it makes sense that I'm going to do whatever Hashem tells me. So before I receive the mitzvot, Hashem says, you need to discover this, and that's why it's such a, Now I get why in Tov I'm singing Mitzrayim. Because in that place, at that time, we discovered that Hashem runs the world. I challenge you to come up with a more important idea. And just to finish off, Ravionas and I there's a famous, famous Maima of Ravionas and Ivershitz. Ravionas and Iverschitz is one of the Kadole Torah in the 1700s He was brilliant. to read some of his works. And a priest comes to Ravionus and Ivershitz and says to him, I don't understand. You have a Pesach that says, Acharei Rabbim Latot. Right? You're supposed to follow the majority. Well, the majority of the world believes in Yeshu. They think Christianity is right. So if you follow the majority, the Christians should always be right. So where's words of Jonas and I should it says, he says, you're right. You're 100% we follow the Rove. But we only follow the majority when we have a suffix. When we're not sure. You know, it, there's three pieces of meat. And we don't know. We think there's one that's not kosher. We don't know if it's this one or that one. It could be either one. So therefore, we follow the majority if we know the two of them are kosher, then, then however we do that halacha. But we don't have a doubt here. We absolutely know that that's not the Mashiach. And I'm happy to have it. That's another good question for Q&A. If you want to know how I know Yashko was the Mashiach, that's an easy discussion. Right? Rabbi Khan al who was murdered by the Nazis in Kovno, takes it to a different place. He says... I don't understand why Abhinos and needs this mimer. Why do you need this whole malach? So it's very simple. What happens if the judges are all bribed? If you have a court and there's three judges and two say one and the other says another, you follow the two judges. But what if you know the two judges are bribed? What if you know all three agree on something but they're bribed? Then obviously you don't listen to the court. Now just like that's true in the larger world, it's true for us. How come we don't know Hashem runs the world? Because we're bribed. Because it's just, there are things that we would have to, we would have to limit ourselves to know that Hashem runs the world. We'd have to accept that we're not really in control. That's hard for us to do. I, 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 I want to do, I, I need that cheeseburger. So if I accept Hashem runs the world, then maybe I can't, I don't really want to accept, we're bribed. How do we undo the bribe? We have to see the bribe for what it is. Right. Sometimes a bribe is good. You know, we're gonna bribe you now with chilling a little extra birthday food, Mirzahshem.